Hello and welcome to another episode of TPA Talks. Today we'll be talking to Toby Young. He's the founder of the Free Speech Union and he's a writer for Quillette. And we'll be talking about freedom of speech in crisis and cancel culture. So let's get started. You're listening to TPA Talks, the Taxpayers Alliance podcast. Hi, Toby. Thank you for joining us. Um, I'd like to start by talking about the Free Speech Union, which you founded. If you could just tell us a bit about why it's needed and what sort of cases that you deal with, that would be fantastic. Yeah, well, um, I helped set up the Free Speech Union in February of 2020. Um, And the reason for doing so was partly because um, I was targeted by an outrage mob for cancellation in uh, at the beginning of 2018 and um, had quite a tough time, lost five jobs. Um, And uh, there was no one when I was going through that experience uh, to turn to for kind of moral support and um, good professional advice. You know, like should you apologize or not is a kind of always a big question when, um, you know, the mob comes for you, will they go away? If, um, if I apologize and if I'm going to apologize, what should I say exactly? Um, you know, and there are no kind of apology consultants, you know, you can call up and get advice from. Um, and uh, so after I'd recovered from that experience, I thought it would be really useful to um, set up an organization that I could have relied on in that situation. Um, uh, and, you know, um, I didn't have, such a terrible experience. Many people who've been cancelled had far worse experiences. And in some cases, people have actually found the experience so traumatic, they've ended up committing suicide. I can think of at least two examples um, in the last five years or so. Um, So um, I wanted to create an organisation that could offer the kind of moral support and professional support um, that the mob comes after. Um, could turn to for help. Uh, But I guess it was also prompted by a general sense that free speech has never been in greater peril, not just in the UK, but across the Anglosphere uh, than at any time since the Second World War. And I think that the timing was, um, was, was really good, because even though I thought things had reached rock bottom when it came to the protection of free speech in February of last year, things then got worse by an order of magnitude. First, we had the um, Black Lives Matter protests and saw lots of people um, getting into trouble for challenging BLM dogma across the board, not only at universities, but um, in big companies too. Um, And then we had the pandemic um, and uh, uh, anyone who challenges the official narrative um, about COVID-19 has also found themselves um, in the crosshairs of um, uh, outrage mobs, including, you know, quite senior scientists in one case, uh, a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, so uh, f- from a timing point of view, uh, it was great, but of course, um, quite depressing at the same time that uh, just when you think you've reached absolute rock bottom when it comes to the defence of free speech, suddenly the floor gives way and you find yourself tumbling through a collapsing building. Yeah, you mentioned the pandemic there. Do you think attitudes have changed towards free speech? Because obviously there is so much sort of 
disinformation people would say about COVID and particularly with something that's new and that's something that we don't really know much about in the first place. I think there's a lot of people out there that think, well, maybe we do need to sort of weed out the sort of fake news around things like COVID or science more generally, because it could lead to sort of dangerous conspiracy theories and things like that. Do you think that's sort of made your job more challenging? Well, yes, in some ways it has made um, the life of the Free Speech Union more difficult because um, it's massively increased the amount of censorship that goes on, particularly online, but also in the mainstream media. Um, I think there are two arguments in response to the rationale you've just set out. Um, the first is that because our understanding of the pandemic and of COVID-19 is constantly evolving, um, it's very difficult for anyone to say definitively um, what is misinformation and what is valuable information. And a good example of how the authorities often get that wrong when they put themselves in that um, position um, was the suppression of the lab leak theory for over a year. Um, uh, and we now, I think, um, uh, believe that it's something that should actually be taken seriously. Um, uh, and if you allow um, social media companies and um, public health panjandrums to determine uh, what's a legitimate topic of discussion and what isn't, they can get it wrong. Uh, and they did get it, I think, seriously wrong in trying to suppress the lab leak theory. It may well turn out to be uh, right. Um, I think the other argument is that um, suppressing conspiracy theory. So even if it's obvious that something is false, I mean, take 5G, it seems fairly obvious that um, the symptoms we currently associate with um, symptomatic COVID-19 are not caused by 5G masks, which some people believe that's a conspiracy theory. I don't think the most effective way to um, persuade people that that's wrong um, is to just suppress it um, and kick people off social media um, if they articulate that theory or keep them off the airwaves or censure um, uh, broadcasters for allowing people to put forward the 5G theory uh, on the air. That, that just, I think, persuades people who are inclined to believe it in the first place, that it's true and that the authorities have something to hide. Much better to allow people like David Icke to set out that theory in the public square and then rebut it with evidence and reason. That's the way to dissuade people that it's true, not suppressing it. And as we can see from, you know, the um, the sorts of some of the people who are attending some of the um, anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown protests around the world, um, uh, the attempt to suppress conspiracy theories has not worked. Yeah, and you mentioned sort of the social media companies, and I think there's a lot of people that think that, you know, free speech has been um, a lot more different since we've had social media on online. Do you think they have a responsibility for what goes on on their platforms and what people say on their platforms, or should they be taking uh, less of an intrusive look at what we're saying and sort of step back from that? Because a lot of them now, a lot of governments as well, have been sort of calling on these social media companies to sort of stop people from posting certain things and talking about certain ideas. Is, is that something that concerns you? Yes, I think... Uh... We've seen a, a, a strange and sinister um, transformation 
of um, the uh, internet and social media platforms, which initially um, seemed to embody the spirit of free speech. I don't know if you remember that famous advert for Apple directed by Ridley Scott, uh, which invoked um, uh, Big Brother and uh, had a kind of freedom fighter smashing the screen um, that Big Brother was on. And the idea was that um, this new portable computing technology would liberate us, um, uh, would, would be a force uh, uh, for free speech. Um, uh, and, and I think to a certain extent it has been. Um, but uh, that vision, that underlying idea has been largely abandoned by the big tech companies. Um, and now they seem very much aligned with the establishment um, and engaged in trying to suppress ideas which the establishment finds uncomfortable or objectionable. Um, and and, and you know, big tech has effectively become big brother. Uh, and that's, that's, a, yeah, that, that, that's a very sinister um, uh, development. Well, you mentioned there that these are sort of you know ideas that the establishment sort of take offence to or, or don't like. Why why has the establishment sort of adopted this viewpoint? Has it always been like this, or is this a new development? Do you think? I think the impulse um, of those in power, um, dating back to the beginning of time, um, has been to uh, suppress dissenting views which challenge their authority, um, and in many cases to punish the dissenters. Um, uh, and um, that changed, um, or began to change, um, about uh, 200 years ago. Um, uh, and uh, I think many of us believed that that change was a permanent change, um, and that um, free speech uh, would be um, uh, passionately defended um, in Western liberal democracies, at least. Um, and uh, what we've, I think, begun to realize in the past 10 years or so is that um, actually free speech is much more fragile than that. Um, it depends upon a culture, it depends upon a lot of institutional support, not just the law. Um, and, uh, uh, and I think uh, uh, in, a, in a way, the default response of the rich and powerful um, to those challenging their authority, which is to punish and expel, um, has reasserted itself. Um, that, that needs to be constantly constrained by traditions, customs, institutions, the law. Um, and I think what we've seen in the past 10, 15 years or so is the gradual erosion of those constraints, which is why the rich and powerful are just reverting to type. What's changed in the last 10 to 15 years? Is it is it the woke movement that's come about? Is that what's driving this sort of new uh, behavior towards sort of restricting uh, what we say and restricting dissenting views? I think uh, it's a number of factors. Um, I, I think in part it is um, uh, connected to the rise of um, wokery, um, which seems to, it has various um, uh, things in common um, with um, uh, a particular strand of authoritarian censorious Marxism um, uh, and uh, doesn't seem to value 
that the woke activists don't seem to place a very high value on free speech, much like their kind of Stalinist predecessors. Um, so that I think has been a factor. I mean, in the past, um, that didn't pose much of a threat. You know, um, uh, hard left political movements didn't pose uh, nearly as great a threat in the West, at least, to free speech as the woke movement does now, um, because they were largely confined to universities um, and um, a few fringe societies uh, and on the fringe um, political parties. Whereas wokery has gone mainstream and has kind of captured the kind of commanding heights of our cultural economy um, across the Anglosphere. Uh, and so it's a much more powerful uh, movement than some of its predecessor movements. Um, uh, and therefore, its uh, censorious character has had a much more destructive effect. Um, I also think that um, the rise of the internet and of social media has had an impact. Um, uh, one of the things that um, woke activists are very skilled at doing is creating the impression um, that their views are the dominant views. And they've used social media, particularly Twitter, very effectively to do that. Um, uh, Twitter, as we know, um, doesn't represent, um, politically is not representative of the country, either here or in America. Um, but um, lots of, lots of um, uh, uh, people in positions of authority in formerly liberal institutions, like say the New York Times or Ivy League universities, um, I think mistakenly believe that Twitter does represent, um, it's when they treat it like a kind of focus group. And if a mob kind of um, emerges on Twitter calling for um, a member of one of those institutions to be canceled, um, they don't realize that it's just, you know, a, a few activists in their mother's basements kind of using hashtags skillfully. Um, they believe it represents a kind of huge groundswell of public opinion, or at least public opinion within those groups that they care about. Uh, and so, um, in a, the, the social media, like Twitter, has enabled um, political activists to significantly amplify their voice and by doing that to increase their influence. I think it's also, um, Mackie, um, uh, de Tocqueville warned about um, the tyranny of the majority and what a threat that always will be uh, to democratic societies. Um, and in the past, it was, it was kind of quite difficult for um, majorities to emerge and make their feelings known other than um, during elections. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the facets of social media has been it's provided a mechanism um, for majority opinion to express itself and also for the majority to express their hostility towards the minority, although paradoxically, a lot of the views which become dominant uh, on social media are actually views held by a minority of people. You mentioned universities, and I do want to come on to that. But at first, I just want to pick up on something you said um, about the sort of idea behind the woke movement that their sort of views are correct and, uh, and right. I think a lot of a lot of woke activists or, or people on the left or associated with the social justice movement more generally would argue that their views are the progressive views that most of society do believe or would believe because they are fundamental human rights that they're fighting for or their um, absolute truths is another thing that they uh, talk about so what's sort of wrong with that viewpoint is is that are they are they incorrect or is this is this the way we're going as a society there's there's a sort of um, 
curious paradox at the heart of um, kind of woke philosophy, um, which is that they don't actually claim um, a monopoly on truth. Um, and they certainly wouldn't um, uh, base their um, views um, on uh, science and reason, which they often dismiss as kind of um, uh, 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 aspects of white supremacy. Um, uh, rather, they are epistemological relativists who don't think any one point of view or any one particular form of understanding should be privileged over any other. Um, uh, and that leads to various attacks on the scientific tradition, on dead white European men and so forth. Um, uh, but whilst, whilst expressing this kind of um, uh, far-reaching relativism, um, uh, they also believe with a kind of fanatical certainty in their own particular values and point of view. I mean, you'd think that if they don't think there's such a thing as objective truth, and if they can't um, claim that as a source of authority for their particular moral values, um, uh, then they would then they'd be you know less certain and less zealous um, in the promotion of those values. But paradoxically, it seems to have the opposite effect. The, the more tentative. Um, the basis, the more fragile, uh, the more arbitrary the basis for a particular point of view is, um, the more fanatically um, uh, it's believed it by its proponents. It's a kind of bizarre form of kind of philosophical cognitive dissonance, um, but it's very much a feature, I think, of the woke movement. And in a sense, maybe, 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 maybe the way to understand it is as, you know, they don't actually... Um, have um, a great deal of intellectual confidence in the points of view they're articulating and promoting. Um, they know, um, uh, given their own um, radical philosophical scepticism, that it's difficult to base them in anything permanent or universal or anything that's likely to persuade people um, who aren't already of their point of view. Um, but um, uh, for that reason, they have to overcompensate by um, by promoting them with a kind of absolute kind of authoritarian fanaticism, and I think it, it, it one of the one of the reasons they don't like engaging in debate is because um, uh, they know that a lot of what they're promoting won't hold up to much scrutiny. Um, so rather than engage in public debate, um, they try and cancel their opponents. But I think th at the root of all of this is a kind of intellectual insecurity, a kind of uh, radical uncertainty um, about what it is they actually believe. Yeah, I think um, I think you're right in what you're saying about there's a lack of sort of uh, permanency in, in their arguments. And I think that's why these kinds of groups and movements tend to move towards arguing about feelings and saying it's about how they feel or their emotions and uh, that's the sort of basis or, or, you know, the sort of fundamental uh, foundation of their argument is it how it makes them feel, which is quite a difficult thing for an opponent to argue against, because obviously feelings are very subjective. Um, but yes, I'd like to talk about uh, universities, as I mentioned. I know it's something that you're quite passionate about, um, and we sort of have touched on the topic uh, a little bit before, but 
I want to sort of get into this sort of idea of council culture. And we've seen it happen in universities, uh, this sort of phenomenon of no platforming. Uh, we've seen, you know, academics like Selena Todd, uh, politicians like Amber Rudd, um, and activists like Peter Tatchell, they've all been no platforms at various different uh, universities. So what, what's going on here and why is it? Why is this happening? One thing we have to be careful about um, is um, claiming that the um, uh, or, or citing no platforming as evidence of the free speech crisis in universities. Um, it's tempting to do that. Um, because there are various high-profile examples of people being no platform, some of which you just referred to. Um, but uh, the reason that's tactically a mistake is that it enables um, uh, uh, the opponents of things like the government's higher education bill, which will strengthen free speech protections in English universities. It enables the opponents to say, well, actually, there haven't been that many no platformings. Um, and there have been various bits of research um, published by Wonky and others um, showing that um, his, you know, um, uh, no platforming doesn't seem to have increased um, in the past uh, 10 years or so. And it's not really a huge problem. And I think broadly speaking, that's true. There aren't that many instances of um, controversial speakers being no platform. Um, you know, there are some, certainly. Um, and when a high profile controversial speaker is no platform, that has a chilling effect um, uh, across the university and discourages others from articulating the point of view that the no platform person uh, was going to express. Um, but the, but, but it, it, it's, it's the self-censorship um, on British universities, which is the much bigger problem. Um, the no platforming is the tip of the iceberg. It's what you can't see, um, uh, which is the real problem. And some surveys have um, tried to get at this by asking students and academics how often they self-censor for fear of uh, being punished in some way for expressing a dissenting point of view. And when they ask those questions, the extent of the self-censorship kind of hoves into view and we begin to see just how large the iceberg actually is. Um, and my hope is that the higher education bill by strengthening the protections for free speech in universities and creating mechanisms which those who have had their speech rights breached can um, uh, uh, seek remedies um, uh, will, 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 will give people the confidence um, to express themselves more freely and not be constantly looking over their shoulders and worrying about the impact it might have on their degrees or their academic careers. It's interesting because from my own experience at university, I mean, this was a few years ago now, but it seems that the fuss about no platforming was only really something that a few students cared about. There are only a few small minority of students that were interested in sort of student politics and things like that. And there was a sort of silent majority that didn't really care about what was going on in, you know, the student newspapers or talk about the latest sort of political fans and things like that. And most of them just seem to be getting on with their day to day lives. You know, they might have a part time job, they might be in a sports club or something like that. So that's what they're really interested in. But of course, then there's that other side, whereas when they if they do get into a discussion like that, how, how do they approach the, the subjects? They might have heard about things that have happened. They might have seen what's been going on, but not really paid much attention. And how they then react to that, I think, is important. So how, how do we go about stopping 
you know, these silent majority of students that might feel like they can't speak their opinions? How do we help them to sort of go forward and be more confident? Well, I think a lot of students um, uh, have been red pilled, um, uh, particularly in the past 18 months or so. Um, they've, you know, in, in, in WhatsApp groups with their friends or um, on uh, in, in the kind of chat bit of Zoom or Teams during a university seminar or lecture, um, they've expressed dissenting points of view, which they didn't think of. Um, as um, hate speech um, or, or even particularly offensive. Um, so they might have challenged, for instance, um, the narrative about um, George Floyd being a martyr. Um, uh, and, and suddenly they find themselves um, being ostracized by their friend group, um, being investigated by the university authorities, um, looking at potential expulsion. Um, uh, and I think a lot of students have found themselves in that position in the past 18 months or so, and that has red-pilled them, that has brought home to them um, uh, just how little they're allowed to say. Um, and uh, you know, the Free Speech Union gets about 50 or so um, uh, requests for help a week, and um, about 20% of those are from uh, students and academics, but most are from um, uh, most of that 20% is from students um, who find themselves in precisely that kind of difficulty for saying something which, um, you know, the vast majority of people wouldn't think was remotely objectionable. I mean, one example, we recently came to the defence of a fourth year law student at Abate University in Dundee uh, called Lisa Keogh, um, who got into trouble um, at uh, during a seminar on, um, I think, law uh, feminism. Feminism, gender, and the law, um, because she said, as far as she was concerned, um, if you didn't have a vagina, you aren't a woman. And she also said that she didn't think that um, trans women should be able to compete against women um, in mixed martial arts. Um, at, at points of view which um, most people wouldn't consider particularly controversial. Um, but within her seminar, those views were considered very provocative um, uh, and controversial. And as a result, somebody complained and she was placed under investigation by the university and the investigation escalated and she had to go to a number of hearings and sort of give an account of herself. I mean, a terrible, um, appalling kind of traumatic ordeal. Uh, and during her finals as well, when she was supposed to be focusing on writing a dissertation and sitting her final exams. Um, but that kind of thing happens, you know, every day at universities up and down the country. And I think that is having a kind of uh, a, a radicalizing effect. Uh, but another thing the Free Speech Union is involved in is we um, are um, co-sponsoring um, uh, the Free Speech Champions Program, um, which is uh, along with the um, uh, uh, Institute of Ideas. Um, and um, it's a group of students and recent university graduates um, who are doing their best to uh, promote the cause of free speech in schools and on campus uh, and trying to help young people understand um, why free speech is important um, and why it isn't just there to protect you know, male, pale and stale conservatives like me, um, but um, in due course um, is something that, that, that will protect them. Um, and if you don't do 
enough to defend it, there will come a time when your own speech rights are no longer protected. Um, and that's that's um, that 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 um, organization um, is doing really well. Um, it's growing all the time. It's now set up a network of free speech societies um, across the United Kingdom at universities um, beginning to organize an event. They had an event. Um, recently with um, Lionel Shriver and others. They've had a, you know, a series of great guest speakers at Zoom meetings. Um, they're going to be, they're going to have a presence on campus during um, Freshers Week when universities uh, come back again in September. Um, uh, so I think that, that, that that's, a, that's a really important uh, movement um, because um, most of the polling indicates that um, students and young people more widely don't realize how important free speech is but if you if you can explain to them why it's important and set out the case for free speech and why it should matter to them uh, there's quite a lot of evidence that they'll change their minds and begin to value it we've sort of said that you know these things start in universities but of course once students leave uh, universities, they go into jobs like in the civil service, for example. And, and do you think that's why we've seen things like the Stonewall scheme, the sort of diversity champions program get so much traction in places like the heart of government? I think it's one of the um, causes. Um, I think that um, uh, not just the civil service, but um, most uh, companies, most employers trying to attract high caliber graduates feel that they have to um, uh, you know, um, uh, talk about diversity and inclusion and um, uh, people becoming allies of LGBT people and so on and so forth. That, that will make it an attractive environment for graduates of kind of Russell Group universities. Um, uh, but I also think um, uh, it's partly because um, uh, the kind of woke movement has um, swept through uh, some of the largest institutions and companies in our country. Um, I mean, there's been a kind of ideological takeover, uh, which has happened very, very quickly. Um, so when, you know, the head of this, yeah, when, when um, the now former head of the um, Department for Education, um, uh, who was also the, I think, um, uh, Stonewall diversity champion for the whole of the civil service. Um, when he um, expressed his allegiance to that program, when he promoted that program, when he talked about diversity, organized uh, various forms of diversity training in the Department for Education and elsewhere, um, I don't think he was doing that, you know, as a cynical ploy um, to attract high caliber graduates to the DFE. Um, I think he really believes it. Um, uh, you know, it's extraordinary um, how um, uh, fragile old-fashioned liberal values have proved uh, in the face of this ideological assault. Um, probably the, the best example is what happened at the New York Times um, last year. I mean, the New York Times, um, probably still the most important um, newspaper in the world, exercises extraordinary influence um, in America and beyond, um, much more powerful than any equivalent newspaper here. Um, but for more than 100 years has been uh, one of the bastions of liberal values um, in America um, and has always stood up for free speech. Um, uh, but last year, um, uh, uh, the op-ed editor published an editorial 
by a Republican senator um, uh, at the height of the civil unrest in the wake of the BLM protests, saying that um, if local police forces weren't able to get the rioting under control, um, Trump would have to bring in the army. Um, uh, and um, because this op-ed editor had published this piece, he was essentially hounded out of his job. Um, and instead of protecting him and standing up for free speech and pushing back against the kind of censorious wokery of the kind of junior staffers at the New York Times, the managers and owners completely capitulated to them all. And when Barry Weiss, someone else who was in the op-ed department at the New York Times resigned um, a few months later, she said that it was as if this newspaper was now being edited by Twitter. And I think what's shocking about that is that um, you would expect these liberal institutions to be a bit more robust um, uh, to, um, to stand up for the values that they've uh, stood up for, for more than 100 years. And we see the same weakness um, across um, universities as well, and not just universities, arts organizations, charities. Um, you know, until 10 years ago, um, they wouldn't have dreamt of um, firing someone because a mob comes for them on Twitter, because they've expressed a mildly controversial point of view or fallen foul of some new woke orthodoxy. But now they don't hesitate to throw these people to the wolves. Um, and it's, it's really shocking, um, the fragility of old fashioned liberal values, I think has come as a real shock to many people. Well, yeah, it is shocking. And to think that this has happened at the highest levels of, you know, the, the most important institutions like our newspapers, our universities, our government even, it, it, you just wonder what's going to happen in the next 30 years if this trajectory continues. One area where it's happened, um, which has been particularly shocking, is that organisations which exist to defend civil liberties and free speech in particular, like the ACLU, um, in the United States, uh, like Liberty here, um, they've, they've been completely captured by the woke movement as well and um, will no longer defend um, the speech rights of people who dissent from woke orthodoxy. Um, I mean, you, you would expect at the very least organizations which were created to defend free speech, not to collapse in the wake of this woke onslaught, but they've been as easily captured as all these other liberal institutions. And in a way that's created an opportunity um, for the free speech union, because um, we are one of the few pro-free speech organizations actually willing to robustly defend free speech. Another area where we've seen um, a collapse um, is in the trade union movement. I mean, one of the reasons trade unions were set up um, in the 19th century was to defend workers who wanted to challenge their bosses so they couldn't be fired um, for, um, you know, for, for, for joining um, uh, political organisations or setting up associations um, which campaigned for, you know, better rights for workers. Um, uh, and they were pretty effective in that regard. Um, uh, but they seem to have completely lost sight of that core value. Um, I mean, the UCU, which is the largest academic union in the United Kingdom, now will not defend, broadly speaking, will not defend gender critical feminists um, who come under fire for defending sex-based women's rights. Um, they've completely sided 
with the trans activists in that particular public debate um, and, and, and seem generally unwilling um, to stick up for um, uh, the rights of members who, who don't share um, uh, uh, you know, uh, th th that trans agenda, um, uh, which is really extraordinary. But again, it creates um, a huge opportunity for the Free Speech Union. Yeah, so it's all been a bit sort of doom and gloom. It seems like we're on a sort of track to uh, self-destruction, really. Is there any good news? The present, the present government um, uh, uh, is doing some things which uh, should help. Um, so I think the higher education bill um, um, is um, uh, really important, um, uh, particularly if it can be amended in various ways to make it even better. Um, uh, but the online safety bill um, will be a huge step backwards. Mm. Um, uh, uh, but um, I think under a different government, things would probably be um, a lot worse than they are now. And at least in Boris, we have someone who professes to believe in free speech, which is more than we have. Um, in Keir Starmer. Um, what are the um, reasons for optimism? Well, um, I think the I think the um, uh, the way in which um, Facebook um, has been embarrassed over its um, attempts to suppress uh, the lab leak theory um, is is it could potentially be helpful. Maybe. Um, Facebook and other social media companies will be a bit more hesitant um, before kicking people off their platforms for challenging prevailing orthodoxies um, now that they've clearly um, got that one so wrong. Um, though on the other hand, um, they don't seem to have become more inhibited about that in the wake of the um, uh, uh, sudden respectability of the lab league theory. They've just changed their policy uh, when it comes to people articulating that particular theory. But there are still a vast range of things you can't say uh, on Twitter or Facebook without risking um, being kicked off. Um, I think uh, I think I think probably probably the greatest source of hope is that um, uh, the defenders of free speech um, are beginning to organize. Um, uh, you know, for, for, for a long time, uh, the enemies of free speech um, have had a kind of pretty um, uh, uncontested battlefield. Um, uh, now there are a number of organizations that have sprung up to defend free speech, uh, not just the Free Speech Union, um, but in America, there's the Academic Freedom Alliance. Um, we've opened branches of the Free Speech, we've opened a branch of the Free Speech Union uh, in uh, New Zealand, um, there'll be a branch um, opening in America um, in the autumn. Um, uh, and there are a number of other um, uh, uh, organizations um, that, have, that have been created or are in the process of being created um, to robustly defend free speech. I think that, that, that's, that's clearly a source of optimism. You know, there is some fight left. Um, uh, on this side of the aisle. I think another, another source of optimism is um, just how many successes the Free Speech Union has had. Um, uh, you know, in a number of cases, um, uh, you know, s someone has been targeted by an outrage mob um, uh, and um, their employer has um, sacked them and we have pushed back and managed to get them their old jobs back. The, the kind of uh, probably the most known case is Nick Buckley, um, who set up a charity in Manchester, lost his job for writing a blog which was 
had some mild criticisms of BLM in it. Um, and we we went to bat for him, found him a charity lawyer, started to help 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 promote a rival petition, and in the end he got his job back. But but what's been surprising to me, pleasantly surprising, has been that when you stand up to outrage mobs, um, when you push back, um, uh, they they often disperse. Um, and I guess it's the it's the age-old truism about bullies um, that uh, once you stand up for them, once you stand up to them and fight back, turns out they're cowards. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the um, people um, uh, in these censorious mobs trying to um, punish dissenters on campus in companies and elsewhere uh, are bullies, you know, and they enjoy the power that they currently have. Um, uh, they like kind of uh, cutting people down, um, destroying people's lives and livelihoods. Um, it makes them feel powerful. Um, uh, you know, they, they, it, 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 they get a huge dopamine hit uh, when they join these mobs and, and see someone squirm and see their employers or a university uh, capitulate to their demands. Um, uh, but um, if you stand up to them, um, if you push back robustly, um, quite often, um, you know, they'll, they'll run away and hide. Uh, and that's been, you know, that's been, that's been a pleasant surprise. And I think that is a source of hope. Thank you to Toby Young for joining us. And if you enjoyed that episode, please like, comment and subscribe. And please do tune in to the next episode of TPA Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of TPA Talks. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let others know by sharing and leaving a review and make sure to tune in next time.